Well, you can find emotional freedom from guilt. You can grow out of it. In fact, that's what you need to do. You need to grow out of feeling guilty. This is what you can learn if you buy Dr. Peter Bregan's best-selling book about guilt, Understanding and Overcoming Negative Emotions for Which Guilt is the Worst. This is quite a common way of thinking about guilt in our world, the concept that guilt is a bad thing. Guilt is often described as a wasted emotion. Guilt is seen as harmful and negative. And of course, uh, for many, guilt is a barrier to pretty well the worst thing that you can, a barrier to what everyone at least wants to be in our modern world, authentic or authenticity. Here's an article from Psychology Today. It says, clearing away the veil of guilt allows us to be more connected to what it is we are experiencing, our thoughts and our actions in light of that experience and thus be more present with our experience and emotion of ourselves. What we're being told often in our world is to rid ourselves of guilt because if we can rid ourselves of guilt, guilt is the thing that's affecting us. Guilt is the thing that messes us up and so Guilt is bad, if you can see the first point in your outline. We need to rid ourselves of guilt. Now, you've got a problem because you're sitting in church here this afternoon. And so not only is guilt bad in our modern world, also religion is bad. And religion is pretty well bad because of guilt Uh, in its various forms. Religion is essentially an industry inducing guilt upon innocent people like you, burdening you with oppression, controlling you with its propaganda through guilt. As the saying goes about guilt, the Jews invented it, but the Catholics perfected it. Guilt's bad, religion is bad, and here you are sitting in church In our world, what is bad is guilt and religion. And what I noticed as I've been reading a little bit about guilt this week is that there's a type of guilt that's very, very bad. Uh, Often uh, thinkers, sometimes psychologists, make the distinction between internal guilt and external guilt. You know, clearly people do things wrong. Our, Our world appreciates this. And so if you are to commit an act of murder for which pretty well everyone agrees is wrong, no one's suggesting in our world that you don't feel bad about that. But that's because you control what you feel bad about. It's an internal guilt. What's terrible, what you need to cut yourself off off from, the world would say, is externalised guilt. And that's a problem. That's a problem because we have a whole book of the Bible that is essentially all about the externalisation of guilt. And that's the book of Leviticus. Because the book of Leviticus is really a demonstration of the guilt of God's people. Uh, For those of you who don't know, the the book of Leviticus uh, is a book that helps God's people understand their position before him. 
We see in the Old Testament that God's people have gone after foreign gods. They have not worshipped or listened to the God that has rescued them. And so as the book of Leviticus starts in chapter 1 verse 3, the basic understanding of the book is that we as people, God's people in this particular case, are not acceptable to him. And so a system in the book of Leviticus is devised. And the system is all about dealing with that guilt for their actions, for their sin. And the way that the system is constructed is it's, it's designed to demonstrate. It's designed to put before the eyes and the ears and the noses the reality of the people of God's guilt. In the book of Leviticus, we read of slaughtered animals, burnt offerings. And guilt can't be minimised in the face of blood, of burnt offerings. In chapter 4, we learn that sin is not something that can be diminished. It's not something that can be dismissed. The reality of God's people's sin can't be done away with by simply them saying, look, well, I didn't mean to. No, the blood of the animal, the reality of the burnt sacrifice says visually and clearly there is, nothing, there is nothing minor or small or essentially something that can be swept away when it comes to the people's sin. What we learn in the book of Leviticus is that sin costs and that an offering has to be made. That's why uh, chapter after chapter are described different types of sacrifices for different types of sins and at different times of the year. And so the people, as they bring their sacrifice before the altar, are presented visually, orally, with the reality of their guilt. It's all about external guilt. In Leviticus chapter, 15, chapter 5, verse 15, we read that the people are to bring an unblemished ram valued in silver shekels. You see, they're to bring a sacrifice that costs them a ram of silver shekels, perhaps three or four months' wages. You know when you've got uh, clothes in your wardrobe, uh, perhaps it's a shirt that doesn't fit, uh, a dress that you no longer wear and you think, oh, look, I really should get rid of it. Put it in a black bag, you take it down to the salvos and there you make a contribution to Vinnie's or the salvos. But at this point, what you're offering them is not a particular sacrifice, really. It's not anything of value to you. The people of God had to offer what was of value to them a ram valued in silver shekels, their means of dinner perhaps for a couple of weeks. The book of Leviticus outlines the reality of guilt and its basic presupposition is that the people of God by themselves are not acceptable before God. 
But the book of Leviticus isn't just about that. The book of Leviticus is also wonderfully about the means for which God provides, about the way he starts to deal with the reality of his people's sin and therefore their guilt. We read a number of times in the book of Leviticus of the sacrifice being made for the people. The sacrifice in Leviticus chapter 1 verse 3 on behalf of the people. In verse 4, in place of the people. The people are to lay their hands on the animal that is to be sacrificed because there in that animal is a representation to God of their sin and their guilt. The secular historian Andrew DeBlanco uh, wrote a book about 20 years ago called The American Dream. Now he's a historian, not a Christian historian, but he traces the history of America and it's not that dissimilar to us here in Australia. Although America perhaps was more Christian in its origin, he says that Christianity had this massive influence in early America. And then he understands that throughout the last 200 years or so, America has moved away from its Christian heritage, from its Christian roots. Many of us would acknowledge the same kind of dynamic has been present in Australia. And then he makes this observation of the way in which American culture has moved away from its Christian roots. He says this, People, speaking about today, are pessimistic and hopeless because they live in a life where guilt is non-existent. Now, this man is not a Christian. He's a historian. And he just is comparing the role of guilt in American life. And we could, um, in parallel, uh, understand that for Australian life. He says this, When you have no reason for guilt you are saying that there is nothing further than you, nothing that transcends you. You are the ultimate authority. You are a god. What Del Blanco is saying is that we live in a society where everything is relative. And when everything's relative, then guilt is minimised. And in fact, guilt is now seen as, have you heard this phrase, toxic guilt. Guilt is something that is seen as inherently bad. But if it's really true that there's no such thing as a God, if it's really true that there's no power beyond us or above us by which we are judged, sure, there's no guilt. You're free. Except nothing really matters. We can get rid of guilt, toxic guilt, externalised guilt, But the price that we pay is that all significance and all meaning in life evaporates. See, no one likes guilt. Guilt is a negative emotion. But it's also a very important emotion. And in the Bible we read that guilt is not simply an emotion. What the book of Leviticus shows us is that, in fact, What we do matters. The way we act matters because there is a God who will judge all of us. But if there's no God, then we don't matter. 
But the reality is we do matter and our sin matters. And the book of Leviticus really helpfully shows us how guilt works. Because what do we do with guilt? This is what I take it you do. This is indeed what I do. We have this irrepressible impulse to deflect and shirk responsibility. If things go bad in our life, that's because someone else has messed them up. So our instinct after sensing our guilt is to do what? To, to push our guilt onto others. What do we call this? Well, the book of Leviticus understands this reality. In fact, in chapter 16 of the book of Leviticus, in the Day of Atonement, where all the offerings are gathered into this one moment, there are two goats that are presented in sacrifice at this high point in the sacrificial calendar. One is killed. Does anyone know what happens to the other goat? Yeah, the other goat is sent away. You see, we think we've moved beyond the archaic world of Leviticus, of all those blood sacrifices. But the notion of a scapegoat is not so far from our lives. The way in which when we feel guilt, we place that upon upon others is something very modern. It's something very current. And so the word of God, although ancient, speaks into the reality of what goes on in our hearts every single day. Because we wander around in the wilderness of our guilt, desperately looking for someone to unburden us. But what if... What if there was someone to guide us with our guilt to a place of rest? What if there was one who could take our guilt away and give us perfect freedom in return? What if we had a freedom to see ourselves as we truly are? A freedom to accept what we've done? A freedom, in fact, to be guilty, to know that we're guilty, to face up to our guilt and not to explain it away, dismiss it. Or see it as something that's merely toxic. This is what we see in the gospel of the Lord Jesus. We see one who deals with what burdens us. The gospel of the Lord Jesus doesn't explain guilt away. It doesn't seek to redefine it. It doesn't seek to minimise it. In fact, the gospel of the Lord Jesus enlarges our guilt What we're going to see in the cross of the Lord Jesus is that we indeed are guilty. Our sin is serious. But the Lord Jesus has saved us. We read in John chapter 19 verse 34 that blood came from Jesus' side as the soldiers placed a spear in his side. And as the gospel writers record the death of Jesus as they speak about his crucifixion, it's not obvious on a first reading that what we have in the death of the Lord Jesus is in fact a sacrifice. In the Bible that's left for 
the latter writers, writers like Paul and Peter and John. But there's no better place to see the nature of Christ's sacrifice than in the book of Hebrews. So why don't you turn to Hebrews chapter 10, for which our reading was from this afternoon. Because in the book of Hebrews, we see that the death of Jesus is a sacrifice. But it's not just a sacrifice. We see it to be the ultimate sacrifice. And there can be no doubt in the writer's mind that this is a sacrifice. Because what is required for sacrifice? Well, you need two things. You need the blood shed of a sacrifice. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no sacrifice. Blood is something that's really important in the Bible. I don't know about you, but I've done this a couple of times. You buy meat, a steak from IGA, Coles, butcher even sometimes, get the barbie all going, and then you throw the steak on, and then you're kind of loving the smell of that cooking steak, and then there's something quite not right about the smell of the steak cooking. Do you know what I've done, and maybe you've done? That little black pad that absorbs all the blood, you've started the barbecue. Anyone else done that as well? It's only me. Oh. <laughs> well, sorry, this is, this is what you've got. Um, we don't like blood. Marketers know this and they seek to take every reality of what we're actually eating in a piece of meat. A little bit of chicken. There's a little bit of blood. My kids won't eat it. We're not familiar with blood. We understand the death of the Lord Jesus in the scriptures to be. And in fact, sometimes the death of the Lord Jesus is um, referred to in shorthand as the she- uh, as um, his blood shed or um, through his blood is a way in which the scriptures speak of his death. Why blood? Well, we were born with what? We were born with the shedding of blood. Life does not come without it. And our life in the Lord Jesus comes through the shedding of his blood through the offering of his life. So we need, firstly, uh, for something to be a sacrifice, blood needs to be shed. Secondly, it needs to be offered to God by a high priest in the Holy of Holies. In the book of Hebrews, we see that it's, it's not the blood of goats and bulls that is nailed to the cross, but in the book of Hebrews, we see that it's the blood of the Lord Jesus In the book of Hebrews, we see that from the very start, the first couple of chapters, we see who Jesus is. We see that he is God himself. He's divine. He's the radiance of God's glory. He's the one who upholds our world by his powerful word. And yet in the next chapter, in chapter 2, we see at the very same time he is God, but he is also a human. He is like us in every way. He is like his brothers, sympathising with the realities of our life, except he is without sin. He is God, but he is also human. Who is the one who can pay the debt for sin? It's only God. And who is the one who can only represent us? It has to be a human. We see in the book of Hebrews that Jesus is both God and man. 
And so his blood is shed. But secondly, it's also the Lord Jesus who offers himself. Because the book of Hebrews understands the Lord Jesus and his death on the cross to be an offering of a high priest. One who was born not by ancestry, but by the power of indestructible life. Christ is a sacrifice because his blood is shed on the cross. But Christ is a sacrifice because he offers himself to God. And what happens when the one who is both God and man offers himself as a sacrifice? Well, we pick that up in chapter 10, there in verse 1. And we see this throughout the letter that there's this contrast. The book of Leviticus and indeed all the Old Testament ceremonial law is a preparation, is a shadow is preparing us for the reality of what will occur when Jesus himself is crucified. Formerly, the priest entered into a sanctuary made by man. But Christ did not enter into a sanctuary made by the hands of man, but he entered into heaven itself back in chapter 9. Secondly, the priest died. Formerly, each high priest as a man died. But Christ holds his office as high priest, as one who intercedes on our behalf forever. He always lives to make intercession for us, Hebrews 7. Previously, it was the blood of goats and bulls. But now it's the blood of the Lord Jesus, his own blood, Hebrews 9. And then we pick it up in verse 11. Because here is the climax of really the argument of the whole book of Hebrews. Here we see the nature of his sacrifice. Here we see what it brings. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. Day after day, notice that language, again and again. You would think if something was done every day, day after day, it'd work eventually. But it doesn't. For the blood of bulls can never take away the sins of the world. It's only the blood of the one who is both God and man. They don't do the job, verse 11. But when the Lord Jesus dies... When this priest offers himself in the crucifixion, he offers himself for all time, one sacrifice for the sins, and then he sits down at the right hand of God. A similar point, if you cast your eye back to verse 10, is made that through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ, we've been made holy once for all. This is a crucial uh, sentence for us to understand, that once for all, day after day, priests offered a sacrifice for the sin of the people. But day after day, they had to offer it because it didn't atone for the sin of the people. But when the Lord Jesus Christ dies, he offers himself as a sacrifice. And when he dies, it is sufficient 
wants for him to die. That's why he sits down, verse 12, at the right hand of God, because the job is done. Sin is atoned for. It's a full and sufficient sacrifice that the Lord Jesus has made. Nothing else needs to be done. And if you cast your eye down there to verse 17, you can see the effect of his death. The sins and lawless acts, God says, I will remember no more. The death of the Lord Jesus is a sacrifice. The death of the Lord Jesus is a sacrifice made for those who would know that they are guilty. For those who wouldn't try and explain their guilt away. For those who know they're guilty, but also for those who know that it's the blood of the Lord Jesus that has forgiven their sins. See, the cross of the Lord Jesus, as we saw in the first week, is this brutal event for which all dignity and respect is drained from the person who is crucified. But there, this person crucified was not some criminal, but the God of the universe. Think of what the Romans, the Jewish leaders, the shouting crowds did to the Lord Jesus. You can, as we read the Gospels, you can see his humiliation and degradation that is so complete that the one who is the Lord of the universe has become what is like an animal on a sacrifice. You can't recognise his humanity. Indeed, how could you recognise his divinity? Isaiah chapter 52 verse 14 says his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form marred beyond human likeness. This is what Jesus did to take upon the sin of the world, our sin, your sin, my sin. And Jesus himself willingly goes as this sacrifice. Unlike the beast who is caught in the herd and brought to the sacrifice, Jesus was full of intention and consciousness. And now in his death, there in his blood, we know our sin has been paid for. There's a number of things that uh, I won't go into that the book of Hebrews encourages us, encourages us to do. Once we realise that, we can know that there's an anchor of our soul. See, the reality is that we do have guilt, and even if we seek to explain it away, it never actually works. It just keeps coming back in all its various forms. But when we know that the Lord Jesus has paid for everything that we have done, that there's nothing beyond Him and beyond His death, we know that we have a sure anchor for our soul. And that, friends, is so much, well, that's so much healthier knowing that the Lord Jesus has died for your sins and that you have a sure anchor for your soul than trying to explain away the reality of guilt. In fact, the book of Hebrews says that we have a confidence now to enter before God into that most holy of places. We have a steadfast, fast anchor for our soul. Our sins have been dealt with. And so in our final point, we see that we are freed to be guilty Our world doesn't want us to be guilty because it thinks it's a terrible burden. But the word of God displays to us that we are guilty. 
We see in the death of the Lord Jesus, in fact, our guilt. You know, before the people in Leviticus, there was no escaping the reality of their guilt with the blood of bulls and goats. But when we see the death of the Lord Jesus, there is no escaping our guilt because it's not the blood of bulls and goats, but it's the blood of God's only Son. We are guilty, but we're freed to be guilty because we know that at the same time where we see our guilt on the cross, we also see our forgiveness. And this is why we, keep, we need to keep saying that the Lord Jesus is not simply a teacher. He's not someone who's given us a moral standard in order to live up to. We can't reduce Jesus simply to a teacher because you know what that does? And this is why I think people do think that sometimes Christianity gives us a feeling of guilt because they see Jesus only as a teacher. Because when you hear Jesus teach, when you hear of God's standard, you know that you can't live up to it. Emulating Jesus doesn't work. Animal sacrifices do not work. The only thing that will put our conscience conscience, our knowledge of ourselves and our image of ourselves to absolute and complete rest is to know that the Lord Jesus has died for us. In the death of the Lord Jesus, we see externalised guilt. We look at our guilt in the eye and rest in the truth that Jesus has taken it out of our hands. We see ourselves as freed. We see, sorry, we see also we are also free to see ourselves for what God has truly made us, blameless. We are totally guilty, but in Christ, totally innocent, at the same time just and sinful. Guilt is bad. We should feel guilty for our sin. But even more than that, we should know and feel the forgiveness that the Lord Jesus has given us. And this is what we do as we proclaim the death of Lord Jesus. We know judgment has been made. Guilt has been atoned for. Jesus says in John chapter 6, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me. The death of Lord Jesus is this external reality for which our sin has been paid for. But as we come to trust in that external reality, as the Holy Spirit comes to us, that external reality becomes an internal reality. We allow the forgiveness of the sacrifice of Lord Jesus to transform the depth of who we are. And that's what we're going to do in Holy Communion in a moment. We're going to be reminded of what happened out there and by faith that that has become a reality of forgiveness in here. Let me close with these words from the poet George Helbert. Love is that liquor sweet and most divine, which my God feels as blood, but I as wine. Amen. Let's stand and sing.